you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, our text this morning will be verses 14 to 17. As you're turning there, I need to say one word of clarification. All of my nieces are great. And I have, I think I have nine or ten of them. Our family is, uh, is growing by leaps and bounds. In fact, <clears throat> the last time I counted... My parents had six children. There are 23 children born to those or adopted to those children, and then there are about 27 or 28 born to the children's as well. So we're, we're having a multiplication. Barneses are all over the place. Someone this morning said to me, well, you look like a peed. I want you to know that it is the peeds who look like Barneses. It's the other way around. Just ask yourself, do they look like Cindy or do they look like Mike? Even one of my children looks like they could be brother and sister to the Pea children. It's because the Peas look like Barneses. So just want to clarify that as well. It is a great joy to be with you here at First Church in Macon. This is where um, I began my association with the Presbyterian Church. In fact, um, this is the first Presbyterian Church I ever was a part of. I was reared in a United Methodist Church. I then went to Baptist churches. I then was at the University of Georgia. I went to a Christian Missionary Alliance Church. I then went to an Evangelical Free Church Seminary. I was a member of a Baptist General Conference Church. And I had a second conversion while I was at Trinity and became a Presbyterian. And then, um, by God's grace and His providence, I was hired by this church, never having been a member of a Presbyterian church or ever had anything to do with one, to minister to college students and singles. And so I came here and joined this church in June of 1978. And I had to wait 10 months before I could be ordained because I had to be a member of a PCA church before they could consider me for examination. I was examined for ordination in this sanctuary by uh, the Reverend John Oliver, very thoroughly, if you know anything about him. And then I was ordained here in this church uh, in the spring of 1979. So this church is where I began ministry as uh, an ordained minister of the gospel. I'm thankful for the ministry of this church. I was I moved in 1981 to Statesboro, Georgia to plant a church, and I've been there ever since now in my 30th year. And God has blessed us there. We're thankful for what he's done in that place. But our church is only 30 years old, not even that. Actually, we're organized in 84. This church was organized in 1826. I was going to say that some of you look a lot older to me than you did the last time, but none of you were around when this church was organized. I'm sure of that. I pray to God that Trinity Church will be around half as long as this church has been preaching the gospel. There are many churches, you may know this, in this nation that were established along the same time that this church was established, and they are no longer preaching the gospel. You would no longer hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in those churches. So you give thanks to God that this church now for 
pushing towards 200 years, has been holding forth the gospel, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's read together 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 to 17, and then we'll pray. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might teach us this morning by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you promised to be in our midst as we call upon you in the name of Jesus. And so we acknowledge your presence here in this place. That we are in this very moment standing on holy ground because we are in your presence. We pray for the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, you said that the Spirit would come and convict the world concerning, convict the world concerning sin and judgment and righteousness. So we pray that you would bring conviction into our lives of our own sin, of the need for righteousness that surpasses anything we can imagine, and of a coming judgment in which we dare not stand apart from the work of Jesus. O Lord, show us the implications of the death of Jesus for the lives that we live. We ask in his name. Amen. I'm not a musician, although I have in my past aspired to be one. It was too difficult for me to learn the skills that were needed, or I had not the commitment to pursue and push through the difficult times. If you are here this morning and you are a musician, you play an instrument of some sort with some kind of skill, my hat's off to you. You have my highest respect and admiration. My older brother is a musician. He plays everything he touches. that has strings, he can play it. Mandolin, guitar, banjo, violin, or fiddle. He can play it all. My younger brother plays the guitar very well and also sings fairly well. My son, Christopher, picked up a guitar and overnight learned how to play it. I don't understand that. It's frustrating to me. When I was in grammar school, I had piano lessons and I about drove the guy who tried to teach me insane. Then somehow they put a clarinet in my mouth and encouraged me to blow on that for a while. That was equally disastrous. And then during high school, I thought, well, I'll learn to play the guitar. And that was also without any success. It takes a lot of effort, a commitment of life to learn to play an instrument. Nothing, someone said, that is valuable is achieved without effort. In fact, a famous 
Austrian violinist of the 20th century, Fritz Kreisler, testified to this point when he said, narrow is the road that leads to the life of a violinist. You probably never thought about it that way. But he went on to say, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, for years, I lived with my violin. There were so many things I wanted to do that I had to leave undone. There were so many places I wanted to go I had to miss if I was to master the violin. The road that I traveled was a narrow road and the way was hard. Once a woman came up to him after a concert and said, I'd give my life to play as beautifully as you do. To which he responded, I did. One measure of what you value in life is to ask yourself, what am I willing to sacrifice for? What am I willing to die for? That may help you to see what you are valuing in your life or what you are living for. To some extent or another, what you would die for reveals in some way what you are living for. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ came to this world to die. One of the major reasons for the death of our Lord Jesus Christ was to pay the penalty for our sins. And from that death, to pay our sin debt, which we could never pay ourselves, a multitude of other blessings flow out to us. This morning, I want you to think with me just for a minute from this passage about the implications of the death of Jesus for our living. What implication does the dying of Jesus have for your living as someone who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And there are three of them I'd like you to note with me this morning. The first is that if Jesus died for you, that implies then that you should no longer live for yourself. The second is that if Jesus died for you, you should no longer live burdened by your past. And the last is, if Jesus died for you, then you ought to live every moment for him. So let's consider the first of these implications. If Jesus died for you, then that implies that you should no longer be living for yourself. Did you note this in verses 14 and 15? of this fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves. If Jesus died for you, then you must die to yourself. If you believe that Jesus died for you on the cross of Calvary, then the undeniable consequence of that is for you then to live for him. And that means in order to live for him, you must die to yourself. Note the Apostle Paul says that Jesus died for all, that they should no longer live for themselves. In other words, the assumption is that the natural man, the man apart from Christ, the man who is not a Christian, naturally has a bent toward living for himself. It is about self-indulgence, self-pursuit. Let me do my thing. Let me have it my way. 
It is a self-focused life. That's radical. In fact, the world around us is telling us that if you really want to enjoy life or get the most out of life, then you need to live for yourself. Pursue what you want, your way, your plan, your will. That's the highest calling of life. And yet the gospel is telling us, no, it's not. In fact, I think the Bible tells us, and Jesus tells us, in fact, you know, Jesus said, the man who wishes to save his life will lose it. The man who gives up his life for my sake will find it. The self-focused life is, I think, in my way of thinking from the Scripture, is the most miserable life. Perhaps you're here this morning and that's what you're thinking. I need to live for myself. I need to pursue all I can for myself. I want to tell you that the end of that life is not only misery for yourself, but misery for everyone around you. It's pretty plain, isn't it? If I live for myself and you live for yourself, if two people in a marriage, one committed to living for themselves, the other living for herself, there's going to be conflict and trouble and misery all around. This is the way of the unbelieving world. The center of everything is self. The eyes are turned inward. The thoughts are centered on self. And the highest and most noble goal that can be conceived of is self-fulfillment, self-pleasure, self-love, self-actualization, self-realization. This is the way we come into this world. This is the bent of our nature. In fact, we see it displayed even in the lives of children. We don't have to teach them that. They display it naturally. In fact, a story illustrates this very well. A small boy and his sister were riding on the back of a new wooden rocking horse. It was given to them as a present. And the brother was on the front, the sister on the back, and they were working at this for a while. And finally, the boy turned around to his sister and he said, You know what? If one of us would get off, there would be more room for me. Children don't need to be trained to be selfish. They come this way. It is in their hardwire. And that's why when you consider how you're going to train your children, you have to ask yourself, am I teaching them to be self-indulgent or self-denying? The Christian must not be living for himself. The Christian has by the grace of God, undergone a radical transformation of life. The death of Jesus on his behalf has changed everything in his life. Would that be your testimony this morning? I became a Christian right here in this town in December of 1969. It was a sovereign invasion of grace in my life. I was pursuing my own way, my own life. I couldn't wait to get out of this place and go to Athens to attend that wonderful Christian school. I was ready to shed 
the shadow of my parents. Everybody said, now, wait a minute, you're a Barnes, and if you go out in the world, someone will look at your life, and they'll look into our family, and they'll conclude things about our family based on what they see in your life. And that was good to keep me morally right outwardly for a while, but I was ready to get out of here and become anonymous and pursue my own way, my own life, self-absorbed. But then I met Jesus, and he set me free from a self-focused life of misery. Perhaps you're here this morning, and that's your focus. I want you to know that Jesus can set you free from that and give you a real life that brings glory and honor to him. It is sort of a spiritual Copernican revolution where I thought myself to be the center of everything, everything revolves around me, and then suddenly I saw, no, it is Jesus who is the center, and I'm to revolve around him. And thus the Christian is following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom it is said by the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, 2 and 3, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. The Christian is one who is also following the instructions of Jesus. Jesus says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The Christian life is one that is centered upon, fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ as the ruler of all in his life. And no one must come before Jesus in his life, and certainly not self. In Luke 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The cross is an instrument of death, and so every day we are dying to self and pursuing a relationship with Christ. Charles Hodge, the famous 19th century Princeton theologian, said, the man who lives supremely for himself, for his family, for science, for the world, for mankind, whatever else he may be, is not a Christian. At the very heart of what it means to be a Christian is to embrace Jesus. It is to forsake self and your own sinful selfishness and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope, the only one who can deal with our sin. So the Christian lives for Christ. He dies to self. Christ died for him, so now he lives for Christ. When are you most likely to be most selfless? I thought about it a little bit in my own life. I think it's when some occasion happens in my life where suddenly the need of someone else or the character of someone else captivates me. And suddenly I'm not thinking about myself anymore. I'm thinking about someone else. Perhaps some great need in another person's life that causes you to take your eyes off of yourself and fix it on someone else. Or perhaps you are in the presence of someone who has a sense of great beauty and you forget about yourself and you are caught up with and enamored by them. Or someone who has such strength of character and such weight as a person that you forget about yourself and you're caught up with them. 
What could motivate you to shed a self-focus and put your focus on Christ? Note what the Apostle Paul says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Some versions have the word constrains us. Having concluded this, that one died for all. When you are caught up with the splendor and the beauty and the majesty and the weight of the person and work of Jesus, when you are caught up with and overwhelmed by the magnitude of his love for guilty sinners like yourself, that begins to be the motivating force that constrains and motivates you to deny yourself and to live for him. The supreme expression of that love was when he died in my place on the cross of Calvary. When Jesus on the cross took the full weight of all of my sin upon himself and then bore the full weight of the wrath and judgment of God that I deserve in my place. What is my motivation for self-denial as a believer? It is not simply the noble virtue of selflessness, as some might promote it. It is a much more compelling motivation than that. It is something that constrains me and coerces me and impels me and presses me on to a higher and holier goal than living for self. It is the love of Jesus displayed for me on the cross, the love that sent him to the cross, the greatest act of self-denial ever committed by any man. Be honest about our lives. We have trouble with self, don't we? Someone crosses us and right away we're wanting to defend ourselves, fight back. In our marriages, we have a difficult time, don't we, putting our mates first. You know that's true if you're a husband and you try to live a life that pleases God as a husband. You've been told by the Apostle Paul that you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's impossible apart from the grace of God at work in your heart to grant you the grace to deny yourself because of the overwhelming love of Jesus that you've experienced in your own life. There's no secret that I can share with you that is the secret to doing away with your focus on self. No new discovery to be made. We simply need to go back to the starting point, back to the cross, back there where Jesus died for us and see the magnitude of his love for us and his self-denial on our behalf and let that soak down deep into our souls. Jesus died for you that you should no longer live for yourself. I want to ask you this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, has your relationship with Christ for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, or five years, or however long it's been, has it made you a more selfless person? That's one of the implications of the death of Jesus. His dying 
for me means that I die to myself. Secondly, if Jesus died for you, then you should no longer be burdened by your past. Here's a great source of joy for the Christian life. Here's the good news of the gospel, that all that past of self-pursuit and all the problems it causes can be shed from my life and I can live no longer burdened by that. You see, living for self-sinfulness causes a lot of problems in life. It brings the burdens of guilt and the heartache of broken relationships and all kinds of difficulty and misery. And yet the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. New things have come. You ever wanted to start over in your life? You know what the gospel, the good news of Jesus tells us? That you can start over. He'll wipe your slate clean and give you a fresh start. Because you don't have to carry around all the burden of all the misery that you've caused by your own self-focus for the rest of your life. That you can be shed of it. What wonderful good news. When a person is transformed by the love of Christ, all that changes, you see. A great transformation takes place. A new heart is created. A new creation, a new creature is born, and a new orientation is adopted. There's a new way of looking at all of life, and the stronghold of self-orientation is broken. Romans 6, 3-6, the Apostle Paul presses the implication of the death of Jesus, that we've been baptized into his death, that our old self has been crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with. So there's a new evaluation on everything in life. I remember after my conversion, I don't know if you experienced this, but everything looked new. It was like, it was like for the first time I was seeing in color. It was in the fall of the year. It's like I'd never seen the sky before. I know some people's conversions are not as dramatic as others, but that was the way it was for me. A new orientation on everything in life. The Apostle Paul says in verse 16, Therefore from now on we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. And Paul contrasts the way he used to look when he was absorbed with self at Jesus and saw just a man, not impressed at all, and then having been awakened by God's grace, a new perspective, a spiritual appraisal and evaluation of Jesus, he saw him now as the eternal exalted, living Son of God before whom he bowed down and worshipped. He even began to think about himself in a different way. No longer burdened by his past, but in a spiritual way. Galatians 2 verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. He underwent a transformation by virtue of his union with Christ, united in his death and then united in his life. The old self crucified, no longer enslaved, by a self-centered, selfish lifestyle, but now set free to live a life to the glory of God. Listen, this is a crucial truth for believers to embrace and grasp in our lives. Sometimes we as believers are plagued by a past. 
You think about your sins. Are they grievous sins? Are there many sins, past things that you wish had never happened in your life? Some people carry those around all their life, burdened by them. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to be burdened by your past. Jesus' death implies that our past has been dealt with. We can evaluate it in a spiritual manner. We can see it differently. Yes, we acknowledge what took place in our lives. We don't deny it or repress it. We deal with it. We face it. And then we go to the cross. And there we see all of that placed on Jesus and crucified with Jesus and buried with Jesus and removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And then we go to Christ and we rise up a new creature with new perspective and new direction in life. This is the good news of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and a great source of joy. So Jesus dying for you means that you die to yourself. Jesus dying for you means that you don't have to be enslaved by your past. And lastly, Jesus dying for you means that you now live for him. You give your life over to him. In Galatians 2 verse 20, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Christ lives in me. Do you see Jesus living in you? Manifesting his life in you individually? Do you see it collectively? Do you see the manifestation of the living Jesus in the life of this body of believers? One implication for the death of Jesus is now we are living for him. If the church is anything, it is a body of believers who are living for Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body? The death of Jesus means that no longer do you belong to yourself. You are not your own. Christ owns you. He purchased you on the cross of Calvary at the price of his own blood. You belong to him. And thus the Apostle Paul says, For me then to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does that mean? Well, negatively it means you die to self. It means no more. My way, my plans, my will, my desires... Positively, it means to strive to put Christ first in your life. You have now a new appraisal of Christ. You see him as the Lord of glory, the King of heaven and earth. And now you see him as worthy of your heart's devotion and all your life's energy you lay before him. It means that you give him the place of preeminence in everything in your life, in your business, in your marriage, in every relationship you have. Your ways are my ways, you say to him. Your law is my law. Your plans are my plans. Your will is my will. Your desires are my desires. And you ask yourself always, will this be pleasing to Jesus, my Lord? This is what we're about as Christians. We are all about Christ. 
It is all about Jesus. We are living for Christ and dying to self. We are enamored with Christ. That's what we do when we come to worship. Someone would ask me, um, how was the worship service? I said, well, I don't know. How'd you do? Who puts the service in worship? It's not me. It's not your pastor. It's not a spectator sport. You didn't come here to watch somebody do something. You are the one who's providing the service of worship. So I want to know, how did you pray? How did you sing? How did you do? You are here to lift up your eyes unto the heavens and see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his glory and majesty. It is all about him. That's what we are about as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are enamored with him. We are worshiping him. We are loving him. And the motivating force of our lives is his love for us. This we ought to get burned into our minds. This should be in our consciousness at all times. This is our plan. This is our reason and this is our cause. And we have no other plan and no other reason and no other cause but to exalt Jesus, the eternal Son of God, our Savior. Then what is our problem? Why is it that I have so much difficulty with myself. Could it be that because I do not know Jesus well enough? Could it be that I think too highly of myself and I think too lowly of Jesus? The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Do you see that all you need, everything that will make you what God would have you to be is found in a closer, deeper, fuller knowledge of Jesus. The Apostle Peter echoes the same theme in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, where he says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's amazing, isn't it? Everything you need for life and godliness, where do you find it? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. No wonder the Apostle Paul says, I can do all things through him. Who strengthens me. What are you living for? You're living for yourself? I plead with you as a dead end. Forsake that and flee into the arms of Jesus. He is worthy of your devotion and live for Him. Are His plans your plans? His desires your desires, oh, to know the love of Jesus more fully, more completely, then the problems of self would begin to fade away. No wonder the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesian church. 
that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. How well the hymn writer puts it, more about Jesus would I know, more of his grace to others show, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we confess, even as believers, that we are often caught up with ourselves. Grant us the grace of repentance that we might forsake a self-focus, take our eyes off of ourselves, and to fix them upon Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who is caught up in a self-centered, self-focused life, you would show them, Father, that that is a dead end. And draw them unto Christ, that they might know his love and his grace and his mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you look on the back page of your uh, worship folder, you have the words of the doxology. Let's uh, stand and we will sing together and then I'll ask for